Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Investor Podcast. This is Gavin Ralston, and I'm talking this week to Craig Botham from the economics team. Last week, I spoke to Alex Tedder about how he expects the equity markets to behave in 2020. Today, we're going to focus on the macro outlook, in particular for the US, China, and the emerging markets generally. Markets have maintained their poise since the start of 2020. The US-Iran standoff, at least for the moment, seems not to have had a lasting impact on market confidence, although it has had an effect on mutual fund flows. Uh, The data since the start of the year shows a high level of risk aversion among fund investors, with investors buying bonds and selling equities. On the other hand, speculative buying of equities has been at very high levels. Taking these flows together, equity markets ended last week up a little, even after the sharp falls on the day when Iran launched missiles at US bases in Iraq. Strong equity performance in China and in economies dependent on China, such as Australia, suggests there's considerable optimism about growth in China, something we're going to come back to. This has been matched by a strengthening of the Chinese currency, the RMB, trading today at 688, having been as low as 710 three months ago. In terms of economic data, there hasn't been much to get our teeth into yet so far this year. The biggest release was the US payroll data, which came in slightly weaker than consensus, both on the number of new jobs created and the rate of wage inflation. So no sign at all that a high rate of employment is fueling inflation. On the flip side, UK GDP data continues to be very weak, although the release yesterday relates to the period before the election. So let's start inevitably, Craig, with the US. Um, How do you see growth in the US panning out this year? I mean, so our outlook for 2020 isn't as bad as it used to be. You know, the trade off has helped push up the forecast a bit. But we do still have growth slowing down in 2020 from 2019. So our current forecast is about 1.8 for 2020 as a whole, and that compares to about 2.3 uh, in, in 2019. Uh, and a big part of that slowdown really is just sort of the fading of fiscal stimulus. You know, so 2018, 2019, you had quite a lot of fiscal stimulus coming into from the tax cut bill, um, and we don't have any additional stimulus now on the, on the table for this year. But no no concern about a recession, which was something that from time to time spooked markets last year. Exactly. We had the yield curve inversion last year. We had lots of people's recession models flashing red and so on. And all those fears have largely subsided now. I mean, we were never forecasting recession ourselves. There was a time when the risk was a bit elevated. But I think the, the trade deal helped push those risks uh, to, to one side for this year. But despite that, you, you're still of the view that the Fed will make one cut in 2020? Yes, we expect to cut in in April. Um, the, the inflation data, which is actually out today um, in, in an hour or so, will, will help guide that view a bit further. But at the moment, we do still see some scope for, for a rate cut, partly because we think in, in Q1, there's quite a big risk from, from the shutdown of operations at Boeing uh, and what that does to Q1 GDP. And that's going to have an impact on, on market sentiment and on what the Fed does as well. And first quarter GDP, if I'm right in thinking, is is often weaker than expectations. Exactly, so yeah. we shouldn't read too much into weakness in the early part of the year. Yes, there's definitely a seasonal component. Um, but this year is going to be hard to disentangle that from the from the Boeing impact as well. So, But but I guess the point would be that the Boeing impact will be a one-off and the seasonal weakness is just that. It's just a, an artifact of the data rather than a genuine fundamental softness in the economy. 
And, and we've seen recently fairly consistent strength in consumer spending in the U.S. And that, that's been the engine of a lot of what growth there has been in the U.S. Is that do you see any signs that that might falter or is that going to be a continuing source of growth for the economy as a whole? I think it still looks pretty well supported. Um, you know, the, the consumer in terms of indebtedness, that's that's at very low levels right now. They've been delivering for a long time. Um, so there's not there's no question that they're going to have to start cutting back to keep their credit cards in check. Um, maybe one concern would be, as you noted, the, the payrolls report suggested a slightly a slight softening uh, potentially of the labour market. So wage wage growth accelerated a bit. The payrolls number itself wasn't as strong as expected. And maybe if there's a consistent downtrend in in wage growth, you'd start to have concerns because, as you might expect, that leads consumption demand in, in the US. But against that, you know, the, the domestic economy seems to be quite strong still. The PMI, as opposed to the ISM, um, is holding up very nicely. There's, uh, there are renewed um, intentions to invest in CapEx by corporates. Uh, and so that would suggest that things are quite well supported for this year. The other factor which um, Alex and I talked about last week was the impact of liquidity. So he, he was concerned about the rate of earnings growth this year, but the offsetting influence on, on equity markets, well, on all markets, is the level of liquidity, which seems to be at pretty high levels given the degree of easing from the Fed and from other central banks. Mm. Is, is that liquidity indicator going to remain strong throughout this year? I mean, certainly in, in our expectations for central bank action, uh, we would see more easing this year rather than less. You know, we, we said we see a cut from the Fed coming through. Um, we also expect very marginal easing at the ECB um, and also across emerging markets, there's quite a few cuts still to, to come. And obviously the balance sheets are still being expanded at this point. So that's all very helpful. Um, I mean, as, as Alex noted and as our models suggest, earnings in the US market this year are going to be under pressure. Um, so there will be that to contend with on the equity market side. But what all this extra liquidity does is it pushes down rates and essentially means you know, there's no alternative. You can't really buy much fixed income stuff because the yields are so low. So what do you do? You buy risky assets. Hmm. You mentioned a moment ago the trade deal. So the phase one trade deal is going to be signed between the US and China this week. So what, what happens next? So the, the trade deal should be signed on the 15th of January. The Chinese have, have flown over. So I think it looks to be on track there. The next step is uh, up for debate. Um, President Trump himself doesn't seem to know what he's doing at the moment. He suggested he would want to immediately pursue a phase two trade deal, which would address the issues that haven't been addressed in phase one, so namely um, intellectual property protection uh, and industrial subsidies provided by the Chinese to their, to their domestic firms. Um, he also said he'd, he might rather do that after the election, which would make it more of a 2021 issue. Uh, the Chinese themselves have said that phase two seems unlikely because the issues that the US wants to negotiate are not issues they're interested in negotiating. Um, and there's also the question, of course, I mean, who is the who is the, who is the president from 2021 onwards? Does Donald Trump actually win? Um, one slight concern you might have is if Donald Trump does pursue a phase two trade deal this year and doesn't get what he wants, does he then seek to blow up phase one, you know, in a fit of pique or just because, well, the whole point of phase one was it was a stepping stone towards a, a more complete trade deal. And the Chinese have told me they're not interested. So, you know what, forget the whole thing. So that would be one, one area of concern. What we might get more immediately from the trade deal is, uh, is an upside surprise. Um, so we, we've all seen some of the text from, from the US side about what the deal is expected to include. But we may end up actually being offered further tariff reduction for China 
once they hit their their purchase agreement targets. So that could be a potential upside for the short run. So either way, as it was in 2019, the trade deal or lack of a trade deal is going to be an influential factor on market behavior in 2020. So let's focus in a bit more on China um, and expectations for growth this year. So growth has been progressively slowing down a little, but I think your forecast is still for 6% growth this year. Yes. I mean, there's a, there's a certain element of I, I obviously have to forecast what the official data will say. Mm-hmm. Um, and official data is suspiciously smooth in China. Uh, and, and we know that for 2020, that 6% is more or less a, a hard target because they have a goal of doubling incomes by 2020 from their 2010 levels. And mathematically, that implies a certain growth rate. Now, they are revising historical GDP, so that might give them a bit of wiggle room to dip below 6% for 2020. But I think you know that's, that's still where we are with the official numbers. We do also forecast a separate series, which is more of a, a composite of a lot of the high frequency data. Uh, and on that, we do see more. I mean, the existing level is already lower than, than 6%. Um, but we do expect growth to basically pick up Q4, Q1, maybe Q2, and then and then resume a sort of deceleration. Mm. And that pickup is driven partly by stimulus and partly by the by the trade deal, removing some uncertainty. Um, but longer term, you know, China is very much on a secular slowdown path at this point. Yeah. And how much room? I mean, the, the the Chinese have been doing some stimulus, not not on anything like the scale of 2009. But how much more room do they have? to maneuver if growth does weaken later in the year? So it depends which area of the government you're looking at. Um, so the historic path for China was massive uh, monetary stimulus, so the PBOC cutting rates, cutting the triple R, uh, and then local governments doing a huge amount of spending on infrastructure and so on. At this stage, the local governments have pretty much tapped out. The PBOC has some room left, but rates are, as, as in the rest of the world, a lot lower than they were back in 2009. Uh, and the PBOC is also somewhat constrained in policy space by financial risk. So even though they could cut rates the way that if they do, then they'll just make things worse in terms of financial stability. So then you're you're left really with the central government, which still has the most budgetary space, um, has the ability to act, the, the power to act, because there's no other political actor that can stop it. Mm-hmm. So there is scope, and so I wouldn't be worried about a hard landing or anything. Um, I mean, that's kind of dropped off the radar anyway in people's vocabulary, but... I'd say they very much still have the ammunition to keep things on on track for for the time being. I also mentioned at the beginning the the strength in the Chinese currency, which is now decisively back above seven to the dollar. What what, what how do the Chinese authorities view that? And perhaps more broadly, what are the implications for emerging markets generally? I mean, I think part of that strength is obviously linked to the to the trade deal, and it was. Uh, further helped along today by the, the announcement that China would no longer be labelled a currency manipulated by the US. Uh, I mean, it never really met the criteria, but Donald Trump had decided he wanted them to be labelled a manipulator. And so there's always a slight uncertainty on maybe this means the US will punish China for manipulating its currency. And that, that threat is now gone. Uh, for the rest of emerging markets, a stronger currency from China is helpful in that it means that Chinese goods are slightly less competitive uh, externally. So it makes their, their lives as exporters a bit easier. Uh, it should mean that Chinese import demand gets a bit of a bit of a boost. Um, so if you're actually to China, life gets a bit better. And it also had the opposite of effect of a, of a big devaluation. So the fear there was always that if China devalues, it's a big deflationary impulse globally. Uh, when it revalues or appreciates, it, ha- it helps global uh, financial and demand conditions. So it's a positive, I'd say, for the year. So that's a positive for markets like Korea, Taiwan, maybe Singapore. 
Yes, I, I mean, I mean, I would say it's a positive uh, for all EM, but particularly for yeah the other Asian exports. Anyone who competes with China, I uh, guess a bit a slight slight extra boost on top of that. So broadening out to the emerging markets in general, there's perhaps on on valuation grounds and equities, there's a fair amount of optimism about the prospects for emerging markets this year. Do is that reinforced by your perspective of the fundamentals? I think so. I think you can look around EM, you can see a lot of good domestic stories. So you're not just reliant on the global trade story improving, which we think it will, or the dollar weakening, which we think it will. Um, you've also got places like Brazil, where growth is going to be a lot stronger this year than last year, uh, with a pension reform passed. Russia, where there's infrastructure investment coming through, which will boost growth above last year's levels. India, where essentially 2019 was so bad that 2020 has to be better uh, at, this, at this stage. Um, and then potentially, you know, even even a couple of outsiders. So Turkey um, still flagged up a lot of risk metrics, but they did a huge amount of monetary easing last year. They're still doing fiscal uh, or supportive fiscal policy. And so from a growth perspective, this year should be quite good for them. And that, and that can potentially deliver gains to risk assets. Uh, and particularly, particularly when the global liquidity backdrop is still so supportive. And last year, obviously, the other big event in emerging markets was the Argentinian collapse. Yes. Are there any countries that you think might be vulnerable to similar negative forces this year? I think the first point to make is that there's no emerging market country that looks nearly as bad as Argentina did at the time things blew up. Um, there are a few who who ring a few, maybe raise a few red flags in terms of their exposure to external financing or the limited level of reserves that they have. Um, and so things that countries that come up for us are South Africa, Chile, and Turkey uh, in this regard. But what I would say is that for the most part, for, the, for those countries to have an Argentina-style uh, crisis, you'd have to have quite a large external, externally driven liquidity shock. Um, without that, I think Turkey should be, should be okay, Chile should be okay. South Africa is a bit trickier because domestic politics are more unsettled and there is the possibility of a downgrade for their, for their bond rating this year. But even then, an Argentina-style collapse is, I think, not on the cards. And the other point you've made in the past is that the central banks in emerging markets have more room to cut interest rates than central banks do in developed markets. Yes. Uh, that obviously depends on a certain on, on the currencies being reasonably stable against the dollar. Is that is that sort of Goldilocks outlook something you see panning out this year? Yes, I mean the the team expects you know the dollar does get slightly weaker this year, so that's a good environment for, for emerging market central banks. Inflationary pressures should hopefully stay contained. We're having a bit of a wobble right now because of oil and food prices, but you would expect those both to pass because you know hopefully Iran is not a permanent situation, and food food prices are just always quite cyclical. Um, and so I, I I could still see a bit more easing in the emerging markets, and I think as well, you know we we are all wrong about how far. DMs and banks could cut rates. We're all wrong about how low inflation could fall. And I think a similar dynamic is going to play out in emerging markets. You, you mentioned um, food price inflation. There's been an issue in China um, with pork prices. Has that now worked through the system? Or is that still going to be something that will cause difficulties? I think I think probably the peak, uh, so, so the pork price inflation situation in China has been driven by, by swine flu, essentially wiping out uh, entire herds. Um, you probably have the very peak of pork price inflation still to come because we're now we're approaching the Chinese New Year holiday, which is typically seasonally. That means you get a, another boost to, to pork prices. But encouragingly, in the December inflation prints, 
it did that like pork price inflation had topped out and started to roll over. So once we get past the holidays, uh, I, I think we, we will start to see pork prices come down quite, quite quickly. Or sorry, inflation has come down quite quickly. Um, but that has had knock-on effects to the rest of the world because obviously China is a big consumer of protein and without any pigs, it has to do something else. Um, and it's probably one of the reasons why China has been opening up its beef and poultry uh, industries as part of these, these trade, trade agreements. Um, but that has le led through to higher protein prices globally. And so that's driven food prices higher for, for everyone, um, but with a particular consequence for EM. So let's just talk for a moment about the, the Iran situation, which, as I said, has had limited effect on markets, at least through sentiment. But what about effect on the fundamentals? What should we be looking out for that would disturb you as an economist? I think for it to have a fundamental rather than just a sentiment impact, you'd have to see a physical disruption to oil supply in, in the region. Uh, and that, that's possible. Um, Iran could close the Straits of Hormuz, uh, which is, is the main where we get oil from from the Middle East. Uh, there's a big disincentive for Iran to do that because that's how Iran also sells their oil to the people who are willing to overlook US sanctions. So China and India are two of the big customers there. And presumably if Iran were to close the Straits to other ships, the US would close the Straits to Iranian ships as well. Um, so it's something they would never do, but without further escalation, it seems seems unlikely. I guess something that would be a concern through 2020 is that although Iran and the US have stopped escalating for now, Iran is now working to get the bomb again. Um, and that's something that the US presumably is not going to be particularly happy with, and you're going to see an increased application of sanctions. And so that is going to mean you have an, a heightened level of geopolitical risk around, around the Middle East once again. Um, but on the fundamental demand and supply side, without physical intervention, we wouldn't be as, as concerned. And the Chinese are presumably very reluctant to, given their dependence on imports of Iranian oil, they will be very keen to keep supply as open as possible. Absolutely. I, I mean, they do have alternatives, obviously. So Russia um, is an increasingly large supplier to, to, to China. Um, but yes, China has quite a high degree of reliance on imported energy, not just from Iran, but from other parts of the Middle East. And so they would want to keep the whole situation calm, if, if possible. Okay, Craig, thank you very much. We're almost out of time for this week. So let me just summarize a couple of the points that you made. One is that the US um, growth expectation is 1.8% this year, but look out for the possibility of a dip in the first quarter, which might lead the Fed to make a cut in interest rates. Uh, we continue to think, as, as the team did throughout last year, there's very limited risk of recession. But there is a question mark over corporate earnings growth. Uh, we're about to see the signing of the phase one trade deal in China, which will take some of the pressure off China-US relations. Uh, and the, the growth outlook in China remains pretty much on track. And I think the from an economics perspective, uh, the team would underpin a relatively positive outlook for the emerging markets this year relative to developed economies. So thanks again, Craig, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>